John 17, and I want us to read verses 13 through 21, focusing on verses 15 through 20. This is Jesus' known as his high priestly prayer, as, as we've been saying. And Jesus is praying this prayer in front of his disciples, audibly. So in verse 13, now, but now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Again, as I've already noted, this is, this is the public prayer of Jesus before his, in the presence of his disciples. And he made a point we've seen already. He said, <clears throat> While I was with them, Father, I guarded them, and not one of them was lost, except the son of perdition. And remember, Jesus was saying he prays for them. He didn't pray for Judas Iscariot. Knew all along that Judas was going to be the betrayer. But he said, I guarded them in this world. Now, I emphasized last week the fact that in Jesus' prayer, he said he wanted to them to have his joy made full in him. And if we took a look at that passage, we had to understand what, it, what was Jesus' joy. Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus' joy was the fact that he accomplished the whole task that the Father had given him to do, which is to redeem his elect, which he did. Now, those events have not yet occurred, but they are most certain to occur. They've been predestined to occur, prophesied to occur, so Jesus can speak of these future events as if they've already happened because it's going to be a sure thing. Now, Jesus <clears throat> says, you're going to have my joy. Father, I want my joy to be in them. And we really need to understand the magnitude again. I want to just keep stressing the magnitude of how special that is. Because we can have Jesus' joy fulfilled in us when we meditate on the glory that awaits us when our body and soul will be one day reunited in perfection 
and we will be forever with the Lord. Jesus was willing, as the scripture says, to go through the horrors of the cross for our sake, but it says he endured it. He put up with it because it was worth our salvation. And I noted just like the fact that Jesus kept that mindset before him of the glory as he prayed, Father, glorify me with the glory that I once had with thee before the world was. He says, I know you're going to glorify me. And he kept that always before him and endured all the horrors for our sake. Likewise, if we're going to have that joy that he was praying that we would have in us, that he had, we too, in our suffering in this world, need to have the same mindset. That's why first uh, we looked at 1 John 3 last week. That when Jesus that one day is revealed, we shall see him as he is. And it says everyone who has that hope fixed on him purifies himself. So Jesus made it clear that we're going to suffer in this world. He already told them in John chapter 15, he says, uh, they've hated me. And the servant is not greater than the master. If, they, if they've hated me, you can be assured they're going to hate you. And he says, <clears throat> the reason they're going to hate you is the same reason they hated me. I was not of the world, and you are not of the world. And Jesus explicitly says in verse 14 here, he says, I have given them, Father, thy word, and the world has hated them. Hated them for the fact that I gave them your word. Now why? <laughs> because they're not of the world, Father. That's why they're going to hate them. He's not of the world. They're not of the world. They hated me. They're going to hate them. And this is important for us to see because Jesus has given his disciples the Father's word, that which is, again, why the world hates us. You know, Paul even said in 2 Timothy 3, 12, it says, yea, all those that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's not a maybe in that. They will suffer persecution. All those who seek to live godly, you can count on it. And we are to expect it. We're to expect the persecution. We are to expect the hatred. After all, Paul said in Philippians 1, verse 29, he says, for unto you it has been given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, you think, think about that for a moment. Paul says, it's been granted to us. It's like, oh, here's a gift. You're going to suffer for my sake. So it's something that, as a Christian, the sooner you and I acknowledge this reality, the better off we'll be. We will experience persecution, hatred. We're going to experience people that's just not going to accept the word that we say to them. We might as well just 
Understand that's going to be the case, maybe with many people that we come into contact with. But again, we got to remember, if we're going to have that fullness of Jesus' joy in us, we, we keep our minds looking toward the goal of our ultimate redemption. And when we do that, then we can, just like Jesus, endure the sufferings that we're going to have to put up with in this world. And we ought to take comfort in what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven is great. For this, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what I can say to you, brethren, is this. The next time you're out and you're witnessing to some people and they may give you a hard time or they may speak ugly about uh, you or someone else that you know, hey, you're in good company. You're in good company. So they persecuted they the prophets who were before them. I'll still not get over when I was in college and we go out and do some evangelism. I remember this was an evangelistic endeavor. We were in the lunch area and another parachurch group was there witnessing to some table. And I could understand that's what they're doing. What was interesting is what I heard from this other table I hear these two guys. Here's, here's what was their reaction to those people witnessing them. He says, bunch of Jesus freaks. That's what they said audibly. I heard it. I don't know if they heard it. It's going to go with the territory. It's going to go with the territory. But Jesus says, you're blessed and rejoice because great, I don't know what the reward's going to be. It doesn't matter. But hey, Jesus says it's going to be a great reward. I'll just accept that, won't you? And so, but how did the scribes and the Pharisees respond to Jesus's words. Well, they hated him for it. They hated him for what he said. And at times, this is what prompted Jesus to say to those guys, those scribes and Pharisees, if you don't believe my words, at least believe the works that I do. At least do that. But that didn't change anything either. You see, those of the world, they're going to hate God's word and they're going to hate those who are the messengers of that word. And Jesus made it very clear in John 8, 47, we've seen that, where he says to some of those Jews, he says, he that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you are not of God. You're not of the elect. And that's why you don't hear. Now that doesn't, see, here's the thing. That doesn't take away the responsibility of those scribes and Pharisees. They should have listened. They should have obeyed. They should have believed in Jesus. But you don't believe because you're not of God. So, Let's be sure uh, and clear what we understand. What does it mean to be of the world? It is to be a part of that 
system of thought that is in absolute rebellion against God. That is what it means to be of the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, help us to understand what is part of that being of the world, because here's what that verse says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. There you got it. That, that's this world system out here in rebellion against God. Paul phrases it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is how Paul phrased it. And you, and when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of that spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what does it mean to be of the world, it means to be a slave to our sin. That's what it means. It means to be a slave to the devil, to do his will. That's how the scripture says. The unbeliever is a slave in two capacities, to their sin, that they cannot help but sin, and to the devil, who is one of their pawns. They just, he, just ha- he strings them along to do whatever he wants. They're a slave they will, the slave obeys the master and the unbeliever will do what the master, the devil, wants them to do. And so they are filled. To be of the world is to be filled with all these lusts, all these discontent. What we talked about was preached this morning, this greed, all this arrogance that's out there. All of that is of the world. And you see, the Christian, Jesus says to the disciples, you're not of the world. You're not like those. And is that not what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away and the new has come. The Christian is different. Their Their whole lifestyle is changed. And so Jesus, again, in in John 15, verse 19, Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, it goes with the territory of being a genuine Christian. Now, we got to understand <clears throat> there's a, we got to understand a key difference between being in the world, but not of the world. 
And it's important that we understand that distinction. Notice what Jesus said in John 17. He says, the world hates his disciples because they are not of the world. But Jesus prays in verse 15 of John 17, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, Jesus knows that we're going to suffer for his sake. He knows that. He told them in advance it was going to happen. He was preparing them for it. And he's praying for his father. Look, I I don't want you to take them out. By not asking the father to take them out, what he is saying is, I want them to be in this world to suffer for my sake because you will use that in their lives. I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out. But here's what I am asking, Father. Protect them from the evil one. That's what I want you to do. Don't take them out of this world that's going to hate them. Just keep them from the evil one. So, Brethren, we are to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And, um, And the reason Jesus says, Father, I don't want you to take him out of the world, well, it's a very good reason why. He gives us the reason, in fact, in verse 17 and 18. Take a look. John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word, thy word is truth. Now that word sanctify Fundamentally, the word means to be set apart. Most of the time in the New Testament, it's used to be set apart into holiness. That's how, that's be the, the predominant use. But the word simply means to be set apart. And to give you an example how that other use is used is in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul knows about a marriage situation where you have one believing spouse and the other unbelieving. And what's interesting is Paul says the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Well, that's interesting. Now, now, but then in that same context, Paul says if the unbeliever, he says the believer is to live with the unbeliever as long as the unbeliever wants to stay. But Paul, in that same passage, says, if that unbeliever wants to leave, you're not necessarily obligated to try to stop them, to let them go. Because he says, how do you know you will save them? So we know this word sanctify can't mean unto holiness. What it means is this. How is the unbelieving spouse sanctified, whether it's husband or wife? Well, they're sanctified because 
they have to, uh, the unbelieving spouse, if it's a, <laughs> the believing spouse, a genuine Christian, they're going to be talking about their faith before their husband or wife. They're going to be doing that. And then they're going to say, honey, why don't you, do, why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? I don't know. No, why don't you come to church? All right, I'll go to church. Oh, what's happening? They're, they're being set apart. They're being set apart. It happened to my, as I've mentioned to you before, it happened to my, my, uh, my Aunt Lola that found that diary of my great-great-grandfather. She lived a godly life before her husband for many years, and it was my aunt's daughters who said, it was my mother, my cousin said this about their mother. Our mother lived such a godly life before our father. It's what led him to Jesus. It was probably 15 years later when she got converted later in life. She was in her late 40s before she believed in Jesus. But her daughter says it was her testimony that led her to life. And when I was at <clears throat> doing the memorial service with my Aunt Lola in Wisconsin several years ago, her grandchildren, it, it was a wonderful thing to hear the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren speak about their grandmother and great-grandmother. And the great-grandson said, yeah, my, my grandmother gave me two-and-a-half-hour haircuts. <laughs> you know what was going on, don't you? It was a glowing testimony. And so... Jesus, what he's, what he's praying here is that, Lord, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. By the way, where do we find the pattern for holiness anyway? In the word of God, right? And it's God's word. And, and who's going to bring the word of God to our remembrance? Remember, Jesus said, when I send the Holy Spirit to you, he's going to always be with you. And he will guide you unto all truth. And he will bring to your remembrance everything that I ever said to you. Well, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word, make thy word their whole life. And may you sanctify them with the Spirit of God that they will understand that word so that they will do the task I sent them out to do. See, the reason Jesus didn't want the Father to take them out of the world was, we have a task. We have a task of winning this lost world to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our task. So we don't want to be out of the world. You know, that, that, that is what is so sad in the history of the Christian church of the monastic movement. The monastic movement of those godly ones who separated themselves uh, for years and years and set up on a tower for 40 years and went to monasteries and, and, and nunneries. See, what's so tragic is that's not a holiness of life. Not really. Because you're separating yourself out of the world. They don't want to be influenced by the world. No, we want to be out in the world. Jesus says, Father, keep them in the world. Just keep them from the evil one. Protect them from the, the great adversary. And so what we see here 
God's word, God's truth stands in complete contrast to the world and to us. Paul, Paul says, here's another thing. We're not to be, one way we're not part of this world is we don't adopt the philosophies of this world. That's why Paul in Colossians 2 says, do not be held captive to vain philosophies. Now, you see that this vain philosophy, in fact, here's what Jesus said in Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Listen to what Paul said here to the Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. There you have it. See, the Bible, the Bible is truth. And it's truth because in here, it reveals to us who God the Father is. It reveals to us who Jesus is. It reveals to us what he expects us to do and how to live amongst one another. Now, there is a Christian philosophy. I remember Greg Bonson making a big point of this when we were in seminary. He said, don't don't think that the apostle was denigrating philosophy. No, he's denigrating a worldly philosophy. There is a Christian philosophy, and that's totally different. It is a uh, the world's philosophy, and all the religions of the world, they're energized by the evil one, the devil, but not the Christian philosophy that has the Bible in its centrality. By the way, the apostle Paul in verse 3 of Colossians 2 said, this, referring to Jesus, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, what was the whole purpose of philosophy? The study of wisdom, right? Of knowledge. Well, Paul says, you want, you want to know where you're going to get real knowledge? You want real wisdom? The only way you're going to get real wisdom is in the word of God through Jesus. The world's philosophies... <laughs> They have nothing to offer you, nothing. And so what we see here, the devil is behind. He's the great deceiver. He's behind all the religions of the world. That's why he's called the God of this world. Jesus wants his father to sanctify his disciples in his word that they can do what the task he gave them to do. And what are we to expect? We're to expect hostility. That's what we are to expect. But we still, we still go. We still present Christ. We still present who Jesus is. Now, I want to reemphasize what Jesus prayed in verse 15 there. Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. 
Now, yes, the scripture says that Satan is a defeated person in principle. The power of death that he once held is broken. That's according to Hebrews 2, 14. The devil once had the power of death, but Jesus' atoning death, according to Hebrews 2, 14, broke that. Yes, Satan fell like lightning, Jesus said when he sent the disciples out. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from the sky like lightning. Yes, Jesus has bound the devil for a thousand years, the millennial period, so that he would no longer deceive the nations. He doesn't have the grip on the nations as he once did with the advent of the Messiah. Yes, the gates of hell cannot stand against the onslaught of Jesus' church, as noted in Matthew 16, 18. And yes, according to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, which reads, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's magnificent, isn't it? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And yes, we are on the victor's side in history. We are on Jesus' side. And in the end, the church will win. But while all of this is true, of all this great victory and all the promises that we have, the Bible also says, as recorded in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have to, that is a true, a truism. During the same period of time that Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning and empowering him where the disciples had the ability to cast out demons, uh, to heal people like he did. All of that was an amazing work. But at the same time, the scripture says he's still around. The evil one is still there. His doom is certain, but he's still an adversary to contend with. And that's why Jesus, later on, after he finishes this prayer, according to Matthew, they cross over uh, the Kidron uh, area to the Garden of Gethsemane and there he'll go out and pray. He wanted the disciples to pray with him, but they were sound asleep. He comes back, finds them asleep, comes back several times to find them asleep. And here's what Jesus said to them. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Now, the, here's the th- reality. Here's how the devil is like a prowling lion, a prowling lion. He knows our weaknesses. I mean, he's been around for thousands of years. He knows how to get at us. He knows how to tempt us. See, that's why he had the power of, over death. Because the scripture talks about how the sting of death is the law. And when we break the law, we deserve what? God's wrath. And so when the devil would tempt us to commit sin and without Christ, (laughs) he's got you. He's got us. But that was broken. But he knows how to get at us. He's deceptive. That's why Jesus knew that. That's why when Peter says, I'm never going to deny you, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I will die for you, Jesus. No, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. No, no, uh uh-uh. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And in, uh, in a way that it doesn't explicitly say it. In other words, I'm going to let him sift you, Peter. Is what I'm going to let him do. But I'm going to be praying for you, Peter. And when you return, go comfort your brothers. And so Satan, Satan is a foe that you and I can't handle on our own. You know, Martin Luther phrased it, Maybe one of the best ways. I want you to open to that great hymn, hymn 81, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And look at one of the first stanza of how Luther phrased that. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, who do you think that is? Our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Luther understood it. You and I, we, we, we do not have the power in ourselves even close to take on the devil in our own strength. I don't know how accurate this is. I, I understand, at least I read somewhere, you can go over to Germany where they were holding Luther when he was on trial by the Romanists and you probably heard the story where he had this vision of the devil and got his ink and threw it at the devil. From what I understand, you can see that ink stain against the wall. Now, I don't know what Luther saw. Well, we'll, But I can say this. Do you not think that the devil was there at the Diet of Worms at the beginning of the, the Great Reformation? You don't think he was there? Oh, you betcha he was there. And I don't know what form he took. Oh, he was there. And, and, and Luther understood, 
We have to have someone greater. And praise God, we have someone who is our champion, who Satan doesn't have a chance against our champion. So when you and I, Jesus says, you need to watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. You may have that desire, but your flesh is weak. Turn to Ephesians 6. And that great portion of Ephesians 6 on the armor of God, I'm just going to read verses 11 through 13. Well, no, let's back up to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Notice, in his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. You know, in the Greek language, if you want to emphasize identity, you have the Greek article. If Oftentimes, if you don't have the Greek article, it's stressing the quality of something. But if you want to stress the identity of something, you use the article. It's interesting here. Put on the full armor of God to be able to resist in the evil day. When that devil comes, and he will come, most assuredly in your life. You can count on it. Are we going to have the full armor of God on? And notice, and especially in all this armor, it says, the shield of faith, uh, there was the shield of faith by which you can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. And so we have, if, if we're going to do battle with the evil one, we, we can't do battle in our own strength. We better have the word of God with us. By the way, that's why it says the only offensive part there is the sword of the spirit, which is said to be what? The word of God. What did, what did Jesus use to take on the devil in the 40 days and 40 nights? The word of God. He quoted the scriptures. That's what he did. That's what you and I have to do. We don't know when that great day is going to come when the devil is going to really go after us. You may have already experienced it. And you think, well, man, Jesus saw me through. I got through that and I'm I'm home free. No, you're not home free until you go to glory. Because you're in a battle. I mean, we, we are in a spiritual war, whether you like it or not. Jesus says, you're in the world, and the world hates you. And they don't like the preachers of God's word. And they're not going to like what you say either. But then he is going to use you to bring some of his elect, I mean, all of his elect to saving faith. 
You know, if we try, if we try to fight the devil on our own, we, we, well, we're sitting ducks is what we are. And this, we got to be sanctified in the word. We got to be filled with the Holy Spirit because it's, what does the Holy Spirit use? The word, the word, the word. And you know, everyone who, who is led of the Spirit can have the victory, but you gotta have the victory with the Word. So the Spirit brings to your remembrance the Word. So when the devil comes against you with great force, you use the Word, you use the promises of God. Get lost, devil, just get lost. You have no more authority over me any longer. I don't know what this means. I remember, you know, Paul said to the Thessalonians, I would have come to you sooner, but the evil one thwarted me. I, the Bible never explains what that was. But Paul, the inspired apostle says, somehow Satan delayed him getting to Thessalonica. This, this is the war that we're involved in. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the word of God you got to have the word of God with correct doctrine. And let me just add this. As you know, of late, of late there, are, there is one out there. He's not the only one who's saying that there is no physical resurrection of the dead. Not to expect a second coming of Jesus. That there is no eternal hell of torment. I said to this individual not long ago, I said, <clears throat> I just want to issue a warning. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. Verses 16. Through 18. Well, actually, let's back up to verse 14. Remind them of the things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless, that leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, and, and what was their problem? He tells us in verse 18. Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And thus, they upset the face, the faith of some. In other words, he says, to deny the resurrection, in either to say it's, it's already happened or to say it's not going to happen, is like a gangrene. And unless you stop that gangrene, it will do damage in the Lord's church. 
Now, Hymenaeus is mentioned again in 1 Timothy 1. Turn over to 1 Timothy 1. Start at verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may uh, fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among them, here he is, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. I'll tell you this. The last thing I would ever want to happen in my life is for the Lord to turn me over to Satan to teach me a lesson not to blaspheme. So these things... There's real spiritual warfare going on, and there's real spiritual danger. Well, Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, as we bring this to a conclusion, he emphasizes his sanctification of himself so that he may, that he can sanctify us. In other words, he had to go to the cross, accomplish redemption, which he did, And that opened up the gate for the Holy Spirit to come and to be with us always. And Jesus Jesus did it all for us. He willingly offered up himself on the cross. And he sanctified himself by obeying the Father, accomplishing all the work of redemption. And then giving us a task and saying, I'm going to send you into the world. I'm going to send you into the world that will hate you, that will persecute you. And you will be out there with the evil one, but I will be with you. And you put on that armor, you can do battle. But you can only do battle in my strength. And you know what, Jesus? He wasn't just praying. Verse 20 says, he says, I'm not asking, Father, for these disciples only. I'm asking for all those who will ever believe in their, uh, in me through their word. That's us. That's us. Jesus was praying for the church down through the centuries. That's what he was praying. You know what's glorious is we we have the Holy Spirit with us as he promised. And Jesus is praying for us right now at the right hand of God the Father. What a glorious thing. And as long as you and I think about that day when we're going to be with him, then we'll purify ourselves as well. And we're going to suffer in this world. But that's why Paul said in Romans 8, that suffering is going to give way to that glorification of the redemption of our bodies one day. In other words, Paul says, 
The suffering that we endure is of no weight of the, compared to the glory that you and I will receive. So no matter what you and I have to go through, it is worth it. It is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as you've promised. And make your word mighty in our lives. And help us to champion your cause for the glory of Jesus. Amen.